Hi, welcome to the Creative Review Podcast. I'm Eliza Williams, and for today's show, we're going to be talking a bit about future, which is a topic that we've been writing a lot about on the Creative Review website this month. To do this, I'm joined by two of CR's writers, Amy McLaughlin. Hi. And Rachel Stephen. Hello. Some of the things we're going to talk about include the future of work, uh, where personalisation may be taking design, and also about human cyborgs, which is my personal favourite from this <laughs> month's podcast. So, but to kick off, I think let's talk about work. Uh, we've talked about a few different ways of working on the CR site, but I think the one that is probably the most topical at the moment is the four-day week, which we wrote a piece about, our, our colleague Emma Tucker wrote a piece about, uh, where we explored the idea of the four-day week and where it's been working. Uh, so some of the ways it's been working have been sort of smaller studios that have been introducing it. And from what I understand, is this right, Rach, they... It's been a, a positive thing, right? It's, it's productivity has been up. Yeah, I think generally, because um, I think it started with a company in New Zealand, maybe an insurance company, and um, and they had done this tech trial and um, and noticed that productivity had gone up. And since then, it seems to be something that's talked about more and more in the UK. Um, I think the Welcome uh, Trust recently introduced a four-day week, but yeah, oh, we, no, they, we were... but they've cancelled theirs. Interestingly, actually, have they? Mm, yeah, I think it was notes. just last week they said that they feel it will not work for everyone That's which is interesting because yeah. it is a, mm. it's I think on the surface I would say pretty much everybody would go I want a four-day week because mm. actually in so many ways especially in the creative industries I think having a bit of time and space especially if you work in an office environment to think like often your brain might not really switch off from work entirely but ideas will come up and there's a generally sort of fairly well held idea that you have your best ideas when you're doing something else yeah uh but in practical terms it can be quite difficult but let's talk about where it's worked well because there's a studio in Glasgow is that right there was yeah where I think they were saying that it was uh, quite a competitive market in terms of companies really wanting to attract the best talent and so I think this company um, had introduced this four-day week as as a way of um, I guess getting the the best people in the door Um, but it seemed to be a really positive experience for them I think they noted that productivity had gone up and I guess overall employee satisfaction as well Mm. Um, and I I think it's it's that idea I guess from from the smaller companies that seem to have had a positive experience with it um it seems like you have a really kind of engaged workforce because I guess everyone really appreciates having that extra day off and I guess the mindset is also that you go into it thinking right if I'm only here for four days I'll kind of make every minute count I'm sure we've all had wasted hours in the office yeah. where you're a bit tired and no never not. of course <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess that the, in theory um you have less of those um Yes, and you're doing a little bit more work, but um, but yeah, I think I think another really interesting um, thing to come out of it is, I guess, um, for the last few years, it seems like one of the main perks that creative companies in particular were offering was really exciting workspaces and you know jazzy offices with uh, table football and Friday beers and things like that. And um, I, I think one of the points that someone raised um, when talking to Emma for this piece um, was that actually now it seems like there's a real shift you know your your office isn't your home and actually maybe now employers should be looking at how people can actually balance their time better and spend more time with their real family in their mm. real homes and going out and as you say kind of doing other things that that might give them inspiration um but i think perhaps um this is going to become a really valuable perk in the future i mean like we said it, it seems like it's complicated um to, to introduce in, in larger companies in particular but if you can't offer people massive salaries um and um yeah, Maybe the big a, bonuses they used to get. It's, yeah. Would it be something that would attract you, Amy, to 
to come and work somewhere? Yeah, I feel like in principle, I would definitely sign up straight away. Um, just because, like Rachel was saying, that whole work-life balance thing, it's becoming so much more important. I think everyone's realising that they need to be able to switch off more and just take like, you know, take that extra day off, whatever. But um, I feel like probably the welcome's a good example of maybe where they haven't perhaps yeah, thought think, it through properly. Um, well, I think interestingly with the welcome, from what I recall reading, it was to do with the sort of support staff um, and the fact that it was difficult to extend it to all aspects of the company. So I'm assuming from support staff it means, say, maybe IT or HR or, yeah. or kind of parts of the company that often are perhaps not as considered as much in these things. But, but yeah, I mean, like I say, that was just an article I read that suggested that. So I, And I don't think, I mean, they're unlikely to reveal the nitty-gritty of mm. why it hasn't worked for them. Yeah, I guess just because it's one of those things which is very much emerging there's always going to be kind of teething problems yeah or something like that so I feel like it would very much have to be something that develops from the employees and the employers together sort of working out the logistics of it so yeah. in principle sign me up um and I'd hope that everyone would want to get on board of it as well so that I wouldn't feel guilt yeah. for kind of opting in when other people opt out yeah I think see it's interesting the guilt thing I think guilt is a really key part of the whole flexible working kind of conversation is how do you create an environment where people aren't judging each other for the amount of work they do and yeah. I mean there was something in I wrote a piece about flexible working uh, which obviously includes the four day week really as a, in part of the concept but uh, one of the kind of points that's come up with that is that it actually people are, do produce more work and it's almost I suspect as a result of guilt that people want to sort of prove in a way they're, they're mm. being productive which I think I mean I think where it's worked well is when you haven't had a pay cut though so if you're doing a four-day mm. week you haven't had a pay cut and then you're kind of quite engaged I think there have been some companies I think Grey New York uh, ad agency offered the four-day week to their staff but they offered it with a I believe 15% pay cuts and nobody opted in (laughs) that kind of undermines the whole principle of the four-day week because I would say with the four-day week one of the reasons that perhaps it's become so popular is that people feel really burnt out overall like a five-day week maybe used to work when you were just doing nine to five but in the creative industries in particular I don't think people are doing that a lot of people are working eight to late or they're answering emails on a Sunday afternoon so they can get ahead of themselves on Monday and so offering people a 15% pay cut I think feels like a little bit of a slap in the face when really it was perhaps actually getting back to being closer to, yeah. to what was considered kind of a reasonable working week you know 10 years ago or yes and also I think crucially they didn't just to your point Amy that they didn't involve the staff in the conversation because mm. the the Glasgow studio pursuit they they built it from the staff up so they built they all the staff were involved in the conversations of how it was going to work and why it was right and a kind of company-wide policy was built which has some flexibility to it I believe Um, but I think maybe if something's just imposed on you or given as an option it's harder to opt in because of the guilt thing and because of the sort of I mean advertising is one of those industries which is really long hours culture and often I think there can be a competitiveness to that of how devoted you are to your job and I don't know it always seems to me that the key thing with all of this is not about whether you're whether you show your devotion by the hours you work but whether you show your devotion or interest or success in your job by what you produce yeah and if you produce great work 
in four days, then why do you need to be there for that extra day just to to sort of be present and but I don't know, there's quite a long way to go, I think. But it's interesting, there's a constant momentum, I think, which I think is quite exciting. Around Absolutely, and really exciting to hear that some companies have had a really positive experience. And I think if smaller companies can build those successful models of doing it, then hopefully in time, bigger companies can learn from that. But yeah. I don't think we can expect the biggest companies to be the ones who start doing that straight away, because, yeah, yeah. like we said, there's Although just lots of logistical challenges, I guess. What an opportunity, though, for always with these things, I think, an opportunity for a, a, you know, a company to... Uh, to find a way to make it work like a big one and mm. set and be the kind of standard bearer I think you know they should try in my view <laughs> <laughs> um all right we're going to sort of do a complete shift in direction now and turn to personalization which I'm going to let you Rachel you wrote a piece for us about this um but which is a new sort of design kind of buzzword a bit isn't it so tell me what it's all about yeah I think I think the concept of personalization is definitely something that people have been talking about a lot for quite a while now um but it seems to be that I think companies lacked the access to the kind of data that you needed to create personalised experiences, but also the tech to do it really well traditionally. So personalisation was always kind of seen as, you know, adding your initials to a product, or you had kind of Nike ID trainers, and they were really... So it's essentially making something quite unique for you, right? But, but for yeah. a big brand, is that that would be the Yeah, and it tended way. to be kind of putting your own stamp on a product, and then obviously with things like Spotify and Netflix, it's become much more about kind of serving you personalised recommendations. Um, mm. And I think what's interesting now is we've reached this point where the technology is better and people have better data and actually there's so much more you can do with personalization. And so really the, the focus of this piece was looking at what's next. And, um, and I think one of the key things that came out, which is slightly frightening, but also very <laughs> interesting, um, was that, that it seems like there's a lot of potential around using your DNA to serve you up personalized Ooh. experiences and products. Yeah, so <laughs> my initial thought when I heard that was, that's really terrifying. Yeah. Um, and I think especially because we've all become really concerned about what tech companies are doing with our data and, and how that kind of grew so much quicker than, than legislation around it or our understanding of how it was going to be used. And I think there's there's a real concern that the same thing could happen with DNA. But in principle, it's, it's quite interesting. There's a company called Habit in the US who... Um, you basically get sent an at-home testing kit, you send them back um, some samples, fill out a questionnaire, and they give you tailored nutrition plans um, that kind okay. of take into account things like your metabolism, whether you have any sensitivities to different foods. Um, there's also skincare brands, which is uh, called Alil. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. It's um, a kind of luxury skincare. So again, they'll analyze your DNA and send you this personalized box um, of are these expensive hugely expensive? I was going, these I was going. ones are hugely. The, the habit, I think, is about $299, which in the great grand scheme of things, I guess, isn't crazy expensive, but it is out of a lot of people's price range or yeah. what a lot of people would consider reasonable. Um, but yeah, it seems like DNA could be the next step. There's also a company in the US called Helix where you can send off your DNA and then choose to share it with third parties. And they might then give you things like That's where um, I don't tailored like exercise plans. <laughs> yes, and I think this is where... In, potentially that could again become quite an interesting thing because they could um, apparently their, their kits uh, analyze loads and loads of different factors and obviously the important thing to mention here is that DNA isn't um, companies can't completely understand you from that there are so many other things that affect your genes and your health um, which is things like your lifestyle um, but the idea is that you could potentially then share your uh, DNA with these third parties and they could give you everything from kind of tailored exercise plans to tailored diet plans so I think there's a in theory, that sounds quite useful. If you've ever bought a product like skincare, for example, that isn't right for you, it's really frustrating. You've gone and wasted money or maybe you've tried yeah. a diet and mm. it just didn't work out for you. So it's actually quite a tempting thing to think that you it's, could avoid those missteps. But the big question is... 
Well, it's, it's back to ethics again, mm. which seems to be the endless kind of conversation around this, the well, design generally, really, um, is how do you know that it's not going to be used to form some sort of database where the <laughs> yeah. people are profiling you or something, like we're into minority report territory, aren't we? <laughs> so it's sort of, that's the fear. And I think as we've seen over the last couple of years, we know that companies aren't always to be trusted. Mm. So... I mean, are, are they sort of talking about how they might manage that and create trust, or is it sort of just the usual kind of we wouldn't do that type thing? It seems like uh, there's a lot of um, attempts to kind of reassure you that they'll treat your data responsibly. I think on Helix's website, um, they mention on their homepage that you can trust them and, and um, you know, your data will be secure. <laughs> but I think, I think it does come down to that problem of the, the tech advancing quicker than the yeah. law or the regulation around it. So I think... There definitely needs to be a big conversation about this before it it starts taking off. At the moment, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of brands doing it, and it does seem like quite a kind of niche, exclusive thing. That perhaps that's the time when we need to be talking about it and trying to put kind of steps and measures and codes of ethics in yeah. place before it becomes something that's kind of widely available to every consumer. Otherwise, we could end up with a situation like we've seen with social media. Yeah, and worse, really, potentially. Mm. What do you think, Amy? Would you want to have your DNA? profiled to I don't mm, I think yeah the ethical thing like what's gonna happen to my data is a big concern and also I just don't know if like I don't know if it's a bit extra like I just feel like there's a lot of good I don't know skincare for example there's a lot of good skincare brands out there and based on like recommendations and trials and stuff like that I'd kind of know if it works out for me I don't know if I really need to go and send off my DNA is it a bit gimmicky maybe yeah I just feel like maybe like in for some products it might be useful but for others I feel like it's potentially just people who have got a lot of money to spend on stuff that they probably don't need yeah that's just me I don't know no I think that's another really interesting point because actually one of the other things that seems to have happened with personalization is that um it's also just about brands giving people more choice. So mm. I think beauty is a really good example because Fenty and you look at Glossier as well and they're two really successful brands, but actually what they've done is instead of going down that route of you know offering you things that are, are tailored based on your kind of genetic profile or anything, they've just said we're going to make hundreds of shades and colours and yeah, we're going to ask people exactly. what products they want. And that's actually another way you can look at personalisation is more about giving people a say and, and just trying to make sure that there's a product that's right for them rather than making something that's based on kind of sequencing their genes. Yeah, exactly. It almost just feels a little bit like, ooh, we're the big power telling you what you need and, like, presenting to you on a plate rather than, yeah, giving you sort of more choice in the kind of products that you want. So I'm not completely sold on it, to be honest. No. I feel, And also, when you've heard about some... Um, I mean, I know it's different, but, you know, there's those... Uh, these testing things where you get your ancestry stuff. Mm, like, oh, immediately, yeah. these things get suddenly become fraught with unexpected <laughs> complications <laughs> and I just feel like somehow with DNA that somehow that's going to happen or, or are they going to discover something where maybe you have a if it's health stuff maybe you're kind of you've got a sort of uh, chance a more chance that you'll get cancer or something like that like because there's already testings around that and how do you do you opt in and what's the it just feels like there's a potentially quite complicated thing that you're going for one thing but actually they might discover other stuff and do they tell you and oh yeah I think some of those brands will only look at certain factors so with Lil, for example it's about um, understanding the different factors that apparently can have an impact on aging yeah. of the skin 
but Helix, you can, I think, uh, as far as I know, use that kit to detect your risk of certain diseases, and that's that's a whole other uh, question, I guess, around do you want to know that? Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it, I think it'll be really interesting to see how it develops and whether it will take off, because I think people will either think, oh, that's really exciting, I'd love to have something that's completely tailored to me, or think, I, I don't want to know, <laughs> always. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'd be interested to see what the kind of demand for that is if more products become available. I think one of the other things that came out of the personalization piece as well, DNA aside, that was quite interesting, was just kind of thinking about what we mean by personalization, because I also spoke to Neil Cummings, who works at uh, BBH SAG, and, um, and he was saying that for... For him, he feels like so much of the conversation in the last few years because we're in the age of kind of automated recommendation and serving you up all of these um, kind of streams of content. So you have your Netflix, you know, because you like this, you must like this, and your mm. Spotify curated playlists. And uh, he made some joke when we were talking on the phone about, you know, if you leave Spotify's uh, suggested playlist running wrong enough, everything will um, turn to Bonobo in the end. But, uh, yeah. but it was that idea <laughs> of, you know, boring, this is boring, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it becomes quite boring. And you and feel actually, quite boring as a person runs, when you see it. Yeah. yeah, does it almost push us into this kind of monoculture where everything keeps recommending things based on what you, you already like. Yeah. But, you know, just because I watched one true crime story doesn't mean I, I only want to sit down at night and watch really grisly true crime maybe the next night I want to watch a comedy and mm. and so he was saying that the other thing is thinking about how you can bring some kind of creativity into personalization in the same way that we get recommendations from people we know because yeah. we want to be surprised and we want to find new things and it seems maybe we might have kind of lost sight of that in the kind of machine driven types of personalization that we see I think now. so yeah. and I feel much more comfortable with that idea than, <laughs> than DNA but I think it's I mean it's interesting and what what we're going to talk about next is this idea of, of tech and human merging and how how it can work well but there's um, we we're going to talk about uh, Amy interviewed uh, Neil Harbison who is is sort of part human part cyborg is, is that correct is yes that the right way of putting it so he um, Neil essentially um, is a human, but he has an antenna um, embedded into his head, which um, allows him to hear color. I can go into a bit more detail on that in a bit if you want. It's not subtle either. It's very. It's, it's very very glaringly obvious. Yeah. Um, to the point where I think he gets people sort of coming up to him, depending on like what sort of period of time it was. Like I think people used to think it was a GoPro. Okay. Um, someone else used to think it was. Um, God, or basically just any sort of like technological thing that's coming out on your head yeah but it's literally embedded in his skull is that right yeah so he had um i think it was in 2003 2004 he um he was developing this technology that would allow him to um hear color um okay. which would essentially through vibrations through vibrations so it would be technology that would pick up the frequencies of color and turn that into vibrations. Okay. Um, and then he was just using headphones to start with. Um, but then he was like, I want to have this essentially as part of my body. So he approached a doctor um, who performed surgery anonymously um, and actually had an antenna embedded into his skull. Mm. So it's now completely fused with his skull, like he is complete man and machine mixture. Basically. And how much of it is... Is there a sort of arty stunt level to it, or is it is it genuinely a sort of well? It's sort of interesting with thing. him because um, he he was born with this condition um, that meant he was completely colorblind. Right. Um, so, in a way, having that antenna that allows him to like hear color 
it's almost enhancing a sense that he doesn't have. So it's like moment. wearing glasses almost in a kind of yeah, in a yeah. sort of weird futuristic or, way. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, he doesn't really see it like that. He sees it more because um, he calls himself a cyborg um, activist and artist. Okay. So he sees the antenna as a piece of art and then he will go and create loads of different artworks based on that. So he does these um, these things called sound portraits where um, he goes up to people, normally celebrities, I think he's done like Judi Dench and Prince Charles and stuff, but he will go <laughs> up to them with his antenna and pick up what colours are coming off them and then turn that into a sound portrait. Okay, so they're willing participates, participants. Uh, I think it's sort of semi-willing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and then he also um, turns pieces of music um, and recordings into these like beautiful graphic paintings. Okay. Um, so I think he's done like um, Baby by Justin Bieber, a few Mozart pieces. Stuff like that. What so a he, combo. Yeah, not not a mashup. No, no, no. <laughs> although that could be interesting to see how it turns out. Um, so he very much sees it as an as an artwork, um, but then you get other people um, that are sort of going down more of the medical route. So yeah. I was reading about one woman who um, has type one diabetes, and she's essentially developed um, like an artificial pancreas. Um, that allows her to monitor her condition via something that's embedded into her body. Okay. So in a way, that's sort of it, it can be used for good, for the greater good as well. Yeah, in a more sort of straightforward, serious yeah, way. Yeah, more of a practical, yeah. practical element to it. Well, I do sort of love the way Neil looks. Like he's, I mean, you know, he's got the sort of a futuristic hairdo and all this yeah. kind of stuff. It's, <laughs> there's a sort of whole package thing with with his thing. Although, oh, he's definitely got a look. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. Yeah, and he, I think he had a, a load of drama when he first had the antenna embedded because um, he had to, he had to get his passport renewed, uh, ah, and so he was getting <laughs> he was getting new photos taken, and he kept on sending it off to get um, to get a new passport, and the British government kept on saying you can't have that antenna in your passport photo and he had to, there was this whole back and forth with them where he was trying to explain no no that is actually part of my body surgically it's actually yeah yeah so eventually um after a lot of back and forth i think he's now been officially recognized recognized as a cyborg by the british government okay so that's pretty good for him yeah yeah i love that bureaucracy is always what's gonna be the, the oh, undoing yeah. of these things <laughs> oh very good Brilliant. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Thanks for listening. And you can read more about all the topics we've talked about on the Creative Review website at creativereview.co.uk. Thanks. (laughs) 